Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. Good morning, beloved. How many of you got a chance to go and tour the room next door? Yeah? What do you think? Up? Down? What do you think? It's great, isn't it? It's so great. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a whole crew of people working on that project for over, well, well over a year. I think that the idea started even before I got here, and boy, they've just done a tremendous job. So we are grateful for those who serve the church uh, so well. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a portion in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11 this morning, so you can get your Bibles ready for that. Of course, the, the, uh, the text will be up on the screen. Um, I think, I, I've been thinking that uh, one of Paul's most overlooked New Testament teachings is the doctrine about the believer's union with Christ. Now, I can't prove why this is true. Why? Here's what I think. This doctrine has been known for um, a few hundred years as the mystical union with Christ. And I think anytime Christians hear that word mystical, they go, uh-oh, no, we don't want any, we don't want any mysticism thrown into our gospel. Now, that's just the way that people talked in, in, you know, two or three hundred years ago. It's not what they were meaning, but I think that might be why it has not really had the focus that I believe that it deserves. But nonetheless, nonetheless, Paul teaches this doctrine extensively. Uh, He speaks about it as uh, we are united to Christ, hidden with Christ. We've been saying this song with those words in it. We are buried with Christ, we are raised with Christ, we share in Christ's sufferings, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And you see this language in almost every one of Paul's letters. And the numbers actually bear this out. So this phrase, in Christ or in Him or in the Lord, whatever he might use to construct that sentence, is used 20 times in this letter to the Colossians. And in over in Ephesians, it's used 38 times. Now. Now, I'm, I know, you know, I'm going to give you a statistic and people are going to go, oh my gosh, what does he do with his time? But those two letters are 257 verses long, and the combination of the in Christ in there works out to be Paul saying something important about what it means to be in Christ every fourth verse. That's pretty important. Not only that, he speaks about this doctrine 164 times in all of his letters. Now, compare that to the number of times the word Christian shows up in the New Testament. It only shows up twice. So I think what's happening here is that the New Testament, Paul specifically, wants us to realize that Christianity is not about a system of rules or the improvement of morals. It's not even a religion. What Christianity is about is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. So I, I point this out because The phrase in Christ says something about our identity, our new identity as Christians. Now, I I did a little bit of research to find out how how is identity formed, and I think we sort of know this intuitively. I found this, this, uh, this, this, there it is. I found this on the website. This should show how identity is formed in our lives from the minute that we're born, perhaps even before. 
Very important people in our lives, our parents, begin to shape our identity. Our identity is shaped by uh, grandparents, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters. And the things that they tell us, or the things that they say to us about ourselves, start to help us construct an idea of who we are. Now when we get older and we go to school, then our, our understanding expands beyond our family unit. And so we have teachers, and teachers tell us uh, things about ourselves, our peers tell us, coaches tell us. How many of you ever had a teacher or a coach or um, a Sunday school teacher or, or an important member of your family say something to you and it just sparked a direction in your life? Anybody like that here? I, that, that, that actually happened to me. I was in ninth grade and my speech teacher thought, you know it would be a good idea if you entered a speech contest. The rest is history. It's, it's just unbelievable to me. So everything about us, all, all the people that are in our lives, and our own skills and our own personal interests, even our geographic location, influences who we are. If you grew up in a West Virginia mining town, you're going to have a very different experience than a person who was born in lower Manhattan. So all of these things shape who we are, ethnicity, gender, various opportunities, whether they're taken or not. And in this portion of the letter, Paul is instructing this young, young church of Colossians about the most significant uh, relationship that they have that is shaping their new identity in Christ. Everything that Paul teaches from verse 5 on, which is where we'll begin to read, everything from that verse to the end of the, end of the book, or the end of the letter, is founded on the first four verses of that third chapter. And, it, and you notice in the first four verses, it's an if-then kind of statement. He says, if this is true, then this is true. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, that's the identity statement. A believer is one who is raised with Christ. This is who you are. Then all these things follow, and you become this, this new person. That's your identity. So to be in Christ means that it doesn't mean like we're like a screwdriver in a toolbox, you know, like Jesus has a toolbox, and we're just one of the Phillips screwdrivers. It doesn't mean that. It's a term that means that we belong to somebody. We belong to him. We belong to him, and uh, we belong to him with a purpose. There's a purpose behind belonging to Jesus, and that is growing up to be like him. That's what being in Christ is all about. So that, what that means, what that means immediately is the old way of living, which we're going to look at in our passage, the old ways of living... They're just not allowed anymore. They're, they're going to have to come to an end because there's a new way of living. And the reason for that is we are called new creations. And a new creation, in the biblical sense, is not just like a rehab 1960s Corvette or a renovation of, like, of that room over there. It doesn't mean that. It means that everything is new. All that old, you never existed as a Christian before. Just think about this. When you became, when you were converted, you became a new creation. That stuff that you were is gone. And the new person is beginning to grow. That's what the point of this text is all about. So let's, let's read it. It's Colossians 3. We start with verse 5. Read through to verse 11. Now, remember, these first four verses. If you've been raised with Christ, then, Paul says... Put to death what's earthly among you. Put to death your earthly, earthy life. 
like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you were then, but now, you must put them all away, including anger and wrath and malice and slander, obscene, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off this old self with all of his practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, and I think Paul is talking about the church. He says, here in the church, there is no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no circumcised, uncircumcised, there's no barbarian, there's no Scythian, no slave, no free, of, uh, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It's a very challenging word for us. But we believe that you have something for us today. You want to speak to us directly today, each one of us individually, about something. And I pray, God, that you'll give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, and minds to grasp what you're saying to us today. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Okay, so in this text, Paul is teaching us three things about this new dynamic life that we are living in Christ. The first thing he's teaching us is what's happening to us. The second thing is uh, uh, what, what is happening to us. The second thing is why it's happening to us. And the third thing is what we're to do about it. So it's what's happening to us, why it's happening, and what we should be doing about it. Now the first thing that's happening to us, uh, I'm pulling out of verses 5 and 8, uh, I don't mean to leave out the middle, but, but these are two separate sets of sins if you look at that. The first set in verse 5 are sins against ourselves, but the next set in verse 8 are sins against other people. And what Paul is saying, what's happening to you when you come to Christ is a radical transformation from that to something new. Radical. That's the key word here. And it's not too strong a word for what this trans, uh, uh, transformation is all about. Because, and remember, the main targets are the heart and the mouth. Now, doctors define radical surgery as uh, like cutting away or, or restructuring a damaged part of the body. It's a very aggressive kind of surgery. My father uh, had lung cancer, and in his operation, he had to have a lobe from his lung completely removed. And it took him uh, over a year and a half to two years before he really fully recovered from that operation. That was a radical surgery. Think about amputation. Um, when doctors do something like that, as radical as it might appear to us, we all understand they do this for a curative purpose. They want to remove the damaged part of the body in order that the body might heal. And verses 5 and 8 are addressing the spiritually damaged parts of our lives that are remaining in us even after conversion. You, you realize, of course, that when you came to Jesus, you didn't immediately go to heaven. There was still some work to do. And so what Paul is saying is we cannot, as Christians living this new life, allow these disordered loves of our heart to remain alive and active in us. We have to put them to death. That's what he says, put these things to death. So we put to death sex, uh, sexual immorality. The English word... Pornography comes from the Greek word here. And pornography in Paul's day 
uh, included much, much more than we might think. It included everything, every sexual perversion, every sexual sin outside marriage. Everything. It was just a, a big box word. The second word is impurity. This word is about what goes on in our minds, using our imagination in impure kinds of ways. And so it sort of comes out of our mouth, you know, and in those double entendre type of jokes, those blue jokes we used to call them. Passion is the next word. It, it, this word doesn't mean something is morally wrong. Passion is not just wrong, morally wrong. Uh, you can have a good passion, you know, a passion to serve people, a passion to love God. But here, in this context, with all of these other words surrounding it, it's very clear. This is a, a passion that is um, immoral. There's a, a sense of craving after things. It's sort of a lusting after things. Paul used this word, for example, in Romans 1 to talk about degrading passions. He used it again in 1 Thessalonians 4 for lustful passions. And the idea, the picture behind this word is that it's very restless. It's a restless kind of sin. And it just craves more and more and more and more. And it's never satisfied. It's never satisfied. It can't be satisfied. The next is evil desires. These are sins that control the heart. Um, that might erupt in schemes of wickedness or self-serving ambition or self-serving lust of some kind. And finally, covetousness, which he calls idolatry. And this is about... It's, a, it's about material acquisition, but when Paul puts the word idolatry to it, it's like worshiping material acquisition. So I need, I need more, more cars, more houses, more money, you know, it's whatever it is, I need more of it. The second set of five, which are in verse eight, are things that we do with our tongues. And we're all too familiar with the problem of the tongue and the power of the tongue, right? James even says it himself. He says, how, how small a member of the human body is the tongue, and yet look, look at how it can set a whole forest on fire. And you just think about this, you know? You have really good friends or family members, and an unkind word or a thoughtless and careless word said here or there, and all of a sudden there's all this conflict and heat between people because of the tongue. So these 10 sins have one thing in common. They're always identifying us for uh, identifying who we are. Now we need to know why. Why does this transformation, so radical transformation, have to take place? Why is it happening? We find the answer in verse 10. And I'll, I'll just put it under, under the title, Personal Growth and Fulfillment. Verse 10. And put on the new self. Put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, very simply, we are conforming to the image and the character and the nature of Christ. And, and when you step back and look at it, we are becoming truly human. Truly human. If you were to ask people to define humanity, you'll get all kinds of answers. You know, you get answers like, well, you know, people are basically good, you know, and we do some things wrong here and there, and, and we mess up, and you know, that's just, that's what it just means to be human. We're all fallen, we're all broken. You might even get somebody, and I, and I had this happen one time, I asked a, a, a fellow to define humanity, he said, well, I think we need to include sin in the concept of what it means to be truly human. Well. The problem with that is that God never defined truly human with sin. He defined truly human in Jesus. When Jesus Christ appeared, 
That was the picture of true humanity. Without sin, Jesus never sinned. He was, he was tempted by sin, but he never sinned. And he never gave in to sin. Sin does not belong in the human race. It never did. So God begins his work by making us truly human when we are properly related to him through Christ. You know, no matter how cultured, no matter how educated or genteel people might be, unless they are related to God through Christ in redemption, they're never going to become truly human. Never. They'll just become more and more of what they are already. Several years ago, there was a, a really good book that was published. I, I believe you can actually still find it. It's called The Search for Significance, Seeing Your True Worth Through the Eyes of God. And the book was written to help people enjoy the love of Christ so much that we could become untethered, unhooked from a search for self-worth based on what other people might tell us about ourselves or our accomplishments. And that's really what verse 10 is saying to us. Verse 10 is telling us where this search for significance originates. It originates with being renewed in the knowledge of the Creator. Being in Christ puts us on a path of renewal that comes from learning to know Christ in increasingly greater ways. And, and, and when we look for significance, from the opinions of others or the accomplishments that we might achieve in jobs or talents, we'll be continually dissatisfied. I could be a, I, listen, I could be a career student, all right? I'd love to study. Find me a program, I wanna be in it. If there's a degree at the end, great. Just get me in that program. I, all I need is to be funded. <laughs> and I would be in school until the day I die, right? Why? I can't satisfy Learning enough. Isn't that weird? That, like, you should get to a point where it's like, well, you can at least say you know at least a little bit. No, I want to know as much as I can know. You can never satisfy that. So I got to ask, you know, how does this happen? How does this change happen to us as we are in Christ? Well, I wanted to say originally it happens to us naturally, but it really isn't natural. It's supernatural. You see, as we give ourselves to the simplicity of reading the scriptures, we see in the scriptures who Jesus is. We see his glory in there. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 8, it says, as we behold his glory, we are changed from one degree of glory to another. And this happens imperceptibly. We're not even realizing that it's happening. But it is happening because it's a supernatural event that's changing us so that we begin to take on the character and the likeness and the mindset, even the actions of Jesus. We begin to see things through his eyes. And the benefit of all this new identity is that we are no longer attached to what other people think of us and say to us. Because somebody could come along one day and say, Bob, you were the ugliest person I've ever met. I don't know. I don't know. Your ears stick out. It's just weird. But if my wife tells me I'm the most handsome man on the planet, I now don't believe those other people. <laughs> but if my wife tells me, I don't know why I married you. Look at you. You're old and wrinkly now. You're ugly. 
and this whole room could stand up and say, Bob, you're handsome. I'm going to be crushed. I'm going to be crushed because the most significant person in my life has told me I'm not attractive. That's true for us. Now, the most significant person in our lives, yes, spouses, children, I, I get all that. That's, that's fine. They're significant. But they're nowhere near as significant as the one who comes to you and says, you are my beloved, and I love you, and I'm not going to leave you ever. There's nothing you can do to cause me to leave you alone. I'm with you. That's where the Lord wants us to be, and that's what it means to be truly human. In fact, there was a man who, uh, who, who had... He, he, he enjoyed all the successes that life could possibly afford. He was a writer, philosopher, a teacher, and he was just well-known around, around the world, wrote a number of books, fame and popularity were everywhere, and just before he died, he wrote this. I beg you to believe me. Multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, and they are nothing, less than nothing, when they are measured against one dram of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. You, you see what he's saying here? He was a Christian man when he died. But you see what he's saying here? He is saying that you can have the wildest successes of, of all the world, and yet you will find that none of them, none of them added up together, even, even measure up to one ounce of knowing that Christ loves you. Christ is the only lasting satisfier of the soul, and God made it that way so we shouldn't fight it we should give in to it so that's what we need that's really the next question what do we do about this what do we do what do we do about uh, why this transformation is happening to us what the goal of this transformation is what are what are we looking to do how do we how do we engage in this this process well, I think after, after, the, after the need for significance, the need for safety or longing for safety uh, is, is sort of next in line. And, and I mean by that a spiritual safety. And that's what we see in verse, verse 11. Look at it. It says, let's remind ourselves, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, barbarian, Scythian. We'd like to know who these Scythians are. I'll tell you in a minute. Slave, free. But Christ is all. Christ is all. And in all. What we find in this verse, Paul is telling us that our safety, our safety as new believers, as new creations, is found in the community where Christ is all that matters to the people he gathers there. Uh, John Stott, the late pastor and theologian, uh, said that whenever Jesus saves a person, he puts them in the church. And he never saves, uh, he never brings a person into the church without saving that person. And, and, and Stott concluded, that means there's no nominal or solitary Christianity. Now, what do we mean by nominal, right? Is it, well, it, it means like in, in name only, right? In name only. What, is, what does that mean? Well, it's like this. The nominal Christian is, is sort of thinking this way. You know, I need a little bit of Jesus. So I think I'll go to church every now and then, and that really ought to do it. Now, what they're doing here is they're thinking, like the person who's looking at his living room or her living room and looking around thinking, boy, I, I sure don't, I, I, we need to change the color of this room. <laughs> I brought Nita over to see the color over there. 
guess what we're going to do? We're changing. Well, you look at this. It's a reasonable thing. It's a nice color, but, you know, it's been this color for so long. We, we need to change. So I'm going to call a painter and have him come over, and he's going to paint, repaint my room. So he hires a painter, and the painter comes over, looks at the room, goes away, comes back with a bulldozer. Say, wait, 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 whoa, 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 what are you doing? Wait, I just want you to paint my room. No, no, this is Jesus with a bulldozer. He comes in to bulldoze your house and rearrange everything. This is something entirely new. And a nominal Christian doesn't, doesn't, just is knocked off balance by that. Now, the isolated Christian, or, or uh, the one that isolates him or herself, is the person who says, um, the solitary Christian says, you know, I, I don't really think much of the organized church. It really doesn't work much for me, as if the disorganized church works even better. Okay, good. But he says, look, I can practice my brand of Christianity without the church. I don't, I don't really need people. Uh, in fact, all I need is me and Jesus. And, and this is what I find odd about this. How do you practice true Christianity when there's no people around you to bug you? David's triumph was heard throughout the land. Did you hear the motorcycle? I'm sorry. I've been waiting all morning to say that. <laughs> Boom. Okay. So the, I, the solitary Christian says, I don't need people. And yet 1 Corinthians says we're supposed to love people. So, so even the people who bother us just simply because they're breathing. So how do we love the people who bother us the most if we are isolated from them? This is not the church that Jesus is building. And so by living in a vital relationship with Christ in community, we live with the people that he saves. And that's what verse 11 is pointing us to. In that day, as well as our own, people define themselves by their tribe, their uh, gender, class, nationality, their, their, their race. In, in Paul's day, Jew and Gentiles never, ever, ever got together unless it was under duress. And we see that actually working itself out. The gospel is working out this problem in Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes over to Cornelius' house. In fact, they have a brief discussion about that. Cornelius says, whoa, this is really weird. Jews don't normally come into my house. And Peter goes, yeah, I know. I had a, a vision about this whole thing. They're talking about this very problem that separates people. In this passage, we find out that slaves and free, they would never sit together under any circumstances at any function. And then you have the problem of barbarians and Scythians. Nobody wanted those guys moving into their neighborhoods. You see the same thing in Jesus' 12 disciples. In Jesus' 12 disciples, there was enough differences in, in among those men that would keep them forever apart. Think about this. Simon the Zealot. He's called the Zealot for a reason. He hates Rome. He hates the Roman government. He's doing everything he can in order to get rid of that government oversight in his nation. He'll go to war if necessary. He'll kill Roman soldiers if he has to in order to get rid of the Romans. Zealous. And then on the other side, there's Matthew, who's working for the Roman government collecting their taxes, making a living off the Roman government. And these two men sat at the same table and they ate together. Now, how does that happen? 
It happened because Jesus was the focus of the, of the lives of these men. He was all that mattered to them. And Jesus brought zealots and tax collectors together with fishermen, and they were able to reach across their man-made, human-made boundaries. And this is the greatest, most convincing evidence that Jesus is alive and active among his people even today. Now, you've probably experienced the same thing, haven't you? You meet somebody who's just like completely different than you, and you find out this person is a Christian. And all of a sudden, it's like you've been friends for years. Uh, back in Colorado in our church planting days that didn't last very long, thank the Lord. Um, Nita and I drove a bus for our school district. And so uh, as a part-time, as a, as a job, part-time job. So we'd go to the, uh, you know, the bus barn, get our assignments in the morning, really, really early in the morning, but there's always time to kill. We'd sit there and wait. And uh, one day when I came in, Nita was sitting with a woman and talking to her. They were having a great old time. Um, the woman's name was Darcy. Her husband was Al. So we, we were befriended by Al and Darcy. Now, I want you to get this picture, okay? So you, you, you know Nita. Uh, there she is. She's dressed in her jeans, really nice jeans, really nice, you know, um, what do you call them? Shoes. Um, something on your foot. Uh, and a really nice looking sweatshirt with a hoodie thing because it's cold. And, you know, and she's sitting there talking with Darcy. Darcy's wearing leather Harley gear, head to toe. She's got tats everywhere. She's got, you know, that chain that goes to the wallet in the back pocket kind of thing. The reason she was wearing the Harley gear was because she was also a Harley repair person. She worked in a Harley um, uh, store uh, fixing bikes, her and her husband. The most notable thing about Darcy, the thing that embarrassed her the most and kept her from interacting with people was that she had lost almost all of her upper front teeth in a bar fight. But she's a Christian now. And she and Nita are hitting it off great. Pretty soon they're becoming our friends. They weren't going to church anywhere, so Nita invited them to church. They came to church. They stayed in our church for a while until they moved away. Their boys were wonderful. You know, we had their birthday parties over at our house. We went camping one time to have their birthday parties, you know, and eventually, you know, they, they moved away. But just before they moved away, we met Darcy in the local Walmart, and we saw her coming, and she's just beaming, just this big, bright smile. Before, there's always closed lips, right? She didn't want anybody to see what, 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 what was going on. And so she always looked kind of, you know, a little bit mad, like people in threat, you know, and some of them stay away. But now she's beaming. She's got this beautiful smile, wonderful teeth. It was, just, and, and she wanted us to see them. She walked up and she goes, look! <laughs> she would never have done that before. Well, the Lord liberated her and he blessed her. You see, this is what happens to us when Christ becomes all that matters break down all those kinds of barriers. You know, they don't matter anymore. So Paul tells us in verse 5 to put to death the sin. Okay, so how do we do that? What, what should we do to obey this command? Well, now for this, we have to go to Titus chapter 2, verses uh, 11 through 14. And uh, 
Uh, I'll, I'll show you what has helped me for many years now in order to fight against and kill sin before it kills me. Now, we, we all know temptation comes knocking on the door, you know, and, and it says to us, listen, if, if you just give in to this, this little thing, you know, like, like getting even with this person because they hurt you and you deserve, you deserve, you know, satisfaction and, and uh, justice and everything like that, you need, you need to tell them off. You know, and, it, and I'll tell you what, when temptation comes like that to you, whatever, whatever the temptation is, it just sounds so good. Like, you know, I'm going to, yeah, you're right. I'll really be happy when that happens. But the, but, but the problem is, it's a lie. It's a total lie. Because sin is the definition of insanity. And insanity can sound so good at the moment. And... Self-control can sound so joy-killing. Listen, before we look at this text, I want you to know God knows every struggle we make when it comes to fighting against sin. He knows it all. Jesus certainly knows it all. In any struggle that we have, Jesus struggled much, much more. But we don't do this in the determination of our own powerful will, because it's not that powerful anyway. We have to do it with the power of the Spirit. So this text shows us how. So let's read it. Colossians, I'm sorry, Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Speaking of Jesus here, of course. Bringing salvation to all people. How was it due? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, just looking to the future, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now this word for renounce is not, not strong enough in the, in the English. Think, think, of, think of this. You've you probably heard stories like this where there's like a mountain climber and uh, uh, he's climbing but a boulder rolls down on his arm and he's pinned. He can't get out. And he, and he, he has a knife and he cuts his, his arm loose so he can get free. Right? That's what this word is talking about. And, and, and Paul's not making this up. He took it right from Jesus who said, who said in the Gospels, listen, if your eye offends you, pluck it out, throw it away. If your hand offends you, you cut it off and throw it away. Why? Because it's better for you to enter into heaven without these limbs than to go into hell with every one of your limbs. That's the point. This is Jesus speaking metaphorically but seriously about the eternal dangers of sin. If we don't kill sin, it'll kill us. It's the idea. So what do we have to do? Well, there's four, there's a four, a four stage thing. Say no, say yes, Savor God and serve somebody. Say no, say yes, savor God and serve somebody. Here's how it works out. You've probably seen the t-shirt that says, um, you know, not today, Satan. Have you seen that one? That's basically what we're doing. In verse 12, the first half of verse 12 is we're saying no to the temptation. So like, it's like this. When the temptation comes, say it's, say it's a temptation about some juicy bit of gossip about a, a person, a rival, that you're not really very fond of, and you just heard about their, their utter failure, I mean, face plant failure, and you, and you are just like so thrilled, and that temptation comes and says, aren't you glad? 
You need to tell somebody. At that moment, stop. Say, no. No, no, no. Why would a person like me, as loved as I am by God, as forgiven as I am by God, rejoice in the failures of another person who is as loved and forgiven by God as me? Why would I do that? Maybe you're tempted to retaliate because of somebody's cutting remark to you. Now, before you strike back, just tell yourself, no, no, no. Just say no. If you've got to say it out loud, say it out loud and, and admit it. So I, am, I, I want to retaliate. I'm not going to retaliate because I know me. Not only will I want an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I want a whole leg thrown in just for good measure. No, no. I'm going to leave judgment to God because he does it so much better than me. That's the say no part. It's a grace-filled no. Shocks the devil every single time. But the second part is to say yes. We say no to the old way of life, but we say yes to the new way of life. We say a powerful yes to self-control. So, the Christian man who says no to pornography says yes to the beauty of purity. The one who says no to gossip says yes to the love of neighbor. The Christian who says no to the love of money will say yes to generosity. You see what's happening here? What's happening here is the, the no, the, the ungodliness that I don't want in my life anymore is being replaced by the character and the love and the compassion of Christ. That's what I want. And so I'm going to say yes to that. I don't have it. I need it. God, give it to me. But that's what I want. Right there. I want that. Step three is to savor the kindness of God. We need something even in those moments to fuel our faith, to believe that God is going is to give us the strength. And here we can imitate the example of, of David. There was a time, many times, when David was lost, alone, confused. He didn't know what to do with himself. And um, he, needed, he needed to reflect on um, God's previous kindness and tenderness to him in order for, to, to resist sin. So in Psalm 77, David asks himself a series of questions. And these questions have something to do with the character and nature of God. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give us a little test here this morning. Uh, uh, students, take out your paper and your pencils. Pop quiz. Okay? And I want you to answer on and out loud. This is the interactive portion of the sermon. So you get to get involved in the sermon. So I'm going to ask you the questions David asked himself. And I want you to answer the way that you think David would have answered. And do it loud. Do it really, really loud. So if a motorcycle goes by, we won't hear him. First question David asks himself is, will the Lord spurn me forever and never again show me favor? What would you say? No, of course not. The next question he asks is, has his steadfast love forever come to an end? No. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger stopped up his love? Right at the end of those questions, David writes the words, Selah, and a lot of people have discussed what it means. There's a lot of opinions. Personally, I just think it means 
shut up, start thinking, ponder these truths. Just think about this. Because when David thought about that, the shafts of gospel truth were coming into his life and fueling his faith. Because these, these are things about God that are true. They've always been true. They will always be true. They will never come to an end. This is the God who loves him. And so he says, I'm going to remember the deeds of my God. And he's meditating on them. And now he's savoring all those wonderful things that God did for him. You can do the same. Well, the final step is serve somebody. You notice at the end of verse 14, uh, it says the purpose for our redemption is to become a possession of the Lord's, yes, but also zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. In other words, we have to roll up our sleeves and help people get to heaven, especially the brothers and sisters in our community where the Lord places us. Um, I recently read an article by a pastor named Garrett Kell. I follow him on Twitter. And he wrote this article called, Help Someone Home to Heaven, How to Walk with the Wayward. And he tells the story about two men who worked together, and I think they, he might have known them, but they, they worked together in a West Texas uh, uh, town, uh, uh, a factory of some kind. One is Richard, he is the older Christian, and then there's Andy, who is um, pretty much a new convert. He's been a believer for a couple of years, maybe. Uh, but they become friends, and... Um, and one day, Andy comes to Richard and tells him, you know, just driving home is a struggle for me. And I get really nervous and really scared when I drive home. And so Richard says, well, why? Tell me, tell me what's going on. He says, well, when I drive home, there's this fork in the road. And if I go left, I go down that road and that's where I live. I live down that road, goes to the left. But down the road to the right, down the road to the right, there is a strip house. And I used to go there all the time. And sometimes I just, I, I just have a real struggle not going since I, I've gone down that road. So Richard says something unusual, I, I would think. He says, Andy, Jesus knows all about your struggle. It's, it's not a problem of his knowing. He, he knows. He already knows. But Jesus is going to be there for you today when you go home. He'll get you home. So they prayed together. The day ended. Uh, they both, you know, left work to go home. Well, it started downpouring, just sheets, torrential sheets of rain as Andy's driving home and his windshield wiper's going like crazy. And then out in, out in front of him, he, he can't quite make what's going on. It's like, you know, maybe 20, 30 yards out. He, he sees something that's very odd in the fork of the road, by the way. And the closer he gets, he realizes that's Richard. And Richard is standing there with a huge cardboard sign and an arrow pointing left. He turned left, and he never, ever turned right again. Now, now let me ask you, how do we get a friend like Richard? We get a friend like Richard when we become the friend of the friend of sinners that all of us should be loving 
who sends us friends like Richard to be our friends. Does that make sense? Become a friend of Jesus. He'll send you a whole bunch of friends who will help you get home. That's the point. That's the church. That's what the church is for, primary. Well, at least a little bit, wouldn't you say? We, we have a lot of purposes, but that's certainly one of them, to belong to the community of, of the friends of Jesus, who's a friend of sinners, so that we might have friends like Richard and help our other friends like and, uh, um, um, Andy or us when we need it. We, we have to understand, the mercy of God is not something we have to go to him and wrench out of his hands. Like he's somehow reluctant to give it to us. He's not. He's not. He's standing there in the fork of the road going, here it is. Here's what you need. I got what you need. Here it is. Thomas Goodwin, who was a Puritan pastor, put it this way. About the God who is the father of all mercies. He said this. As our hearts and the devil are the father of a variety of sins, so God is the father of a variety of mercies. There's no sin or misery, but that God has a mercy for it. He has in himself a kind of shop, a treasure of all sorts of mercies, divided into several promises of scripture, which are just so many boxes of his treasures. If your heart is hard, he has mercies that are tender. If your heart is dead, he has mercies to make it alive. If you're sick, he has mercies to heal you. If you're sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. As large and as various as are our wants, that's how large and various are his mercies. And that's why we come boldly to find grace and mercy to help in the time of need. A mercy for every need. All his mercies are in his own heart. And they are transplanted into several beds in the garden of his promises, the scriptures, where they grow. They grow in us. And he has an abundance of a variety of them suited to all the variety of the diseases of the soul. You can't find a better friend to go to when you need that kind of mercy than Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you for sending your son into this world as proof of your mercy, as proof of your grace. And oh Lord, we need your mercy and your grace every day, especially in this work of killing sin. So we, we pray that you will help us today to put away that sin that always, always bugs us and comes knocking at the door. Help us to put that sin away. Help us to see it the way Christ sees it. Help us to hate it the way you hate it. And to see how it separates us from one another and even from you. So give us greater love for your uh, grace and mercy than for our sins. Give us more, more opportunity to help others get home to heaven. Help us to fix our hearts in our minds on you and on your glory so that we can walk in obedience and please you in everything that we do. So what we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.